aspire to cool down, and within minutes, the temperature, even with the windows down a little, can exceed 100 degrees. So on warm days, please be kind. Leave your dog safely at home. For more information, contact PETA, 757-622-PETA. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program we've got Lori R. King. Hi. Lori, welcome. Thank welcome. you. <laughs> Are we all in the mood now? <laughs> I know. It was almost like strange alien birds that preceded us, <laughs> but actually it wasn't. <laughs> Just a super fast violinist, right? <laughs> um, Lori's coming through town um, with her latest, The, uh, the Language of Bees. Um, and Lori, just to kick off things, do you mind if I read your uh, your bio, a little little bit of a bio to ground people? I, I look forward to it. Okay. <laughs> what does it say? Oh, I didn't write it. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. It's just um, the one that your your publisher sent. Okay. Um, your your Random House Phantom publisher, um, the the great duo. Um, okay, Lori R. King lives in the hills above Monterey Bay in Northern California with a town with one stoplight. Yeah. Her background includes such diverse interests as Old Testament theology and construction work, and she's been writing crime fiction since 1987. The winner of the Edgar, the Narrow, the McCavity, and the John Creasy Awards. She is the author of highly praised standalone suspense novels and a contemporary mystery series featuring San Francisco police detective Kate Martinelli and the author of nine mysteries in the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes series, including the New York Times bestseller, The Game. Today, we'll be talking about one of the books in those series, The Language of Bees. She's currently at work on her next novel to be published also by Bantam. And you can visit, yeah, why don't check out her website? You know, you could even follow along, click on that, lauriking.com. Um, because I was visiting the site earlier today, too. It's a, it's a big site, isn't it? It's got lots of stuff on it. You get lost in there for days. <laughs> you can. I like this. Well, I should say it's the 18th of May. In case you are lost in there for days, it's um, we're, we're taping the program 18th of May, 2009. Um, I like the blog. Um, you have Mary Russell's blog there, which is called Mutterings. <laughs> That's well, pretty good. Well, my, Mutterings is, is actually my blog, but Lori, but oh. uh, but Russell keeps a MySpace blog. She she has um, during this past uh, 15 weeks, we've been doing a thing online, and she's been keeping a weekly episodes of, of how I came to give Lori R. King these manuscripts. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice. I noticed that you get you get some mail from people who are saying that maybe it should be changed on the website that you actually wrote the book since she since Mary obviously mailed them to you in a chest, right? <laughs> and I like how your response was I'm not going to play that. You're going to have to figure out that game yourself. Because <laughs> someone was rather indignant that you were trying to take Mary Russell's credit. It, it, it's a, a severe legal problem, isn't it, to have a name of someone on a book when clearly they're not the person who wrote the book. Right. Is, I, I, but I, you know. Clearly it came in a trunk. <laughs> well, they're very rough manuscripts, and it does take me a lot of work to transcribe them, and I do throw my own edition into them sometimes so you know fair enough <laughs> well well actually let's um let's let's fill people in because just in case people haven't read one of the preceding books 
to this series. Always good to fill them in. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you mind doing the honors, Lori? Oh, oh you're going to make me work here, huh? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 15 years ago, um, The Beekeeper's Apprentice was published. And in it, 15-year-old Mary Russell is walking the Sussex Downs in southern England and nearly steps on Sherlock Holmes. Um, the, the the fact that the two then um, begin to insult each other um, finds them greatly, greatly sympathetic to each other's <laughs> personalities. And because it, much separates them right on the surface because she's 15 and he at this point is... Older. In his 50s. And he's a man and yes, she's a young girl. Yes. <laughs> but the whole idea is that um, she is a young 20th century female version of Holmes. Her mind is that same person. So the that... two of them meet and she becomes his apprentice and then his partner. And by the time you get to The Language of Bees, which is the ninth volume, um, they've been married for several years. So. So you said the idea behind it. So was when you started writing this series, Laurie, was that in your mind, like what you wanted to do, like the 20th century modern, or did, was it something that this character, when she appeared to you, kind of grew into? No, I think from the beginning, um, it was it was clear what she was. Because the, I mean, the whole business of writing crime fiction, you always are aware of the great figures such as Holmes in the background. But I thought it would be more interesting to bring him to the foreground, make him a supporting actor, and uh, and give him someone more suited to him than Dr. Watson. I mean, Watson was a very fine partner and all that, but really didn't challenge Holmes a great deal. But Russell does. So how how did you come to this? Because you, you're like... Um, did you come to it? Were you an avid um, reader uh, as a child, because your your background, we got a little snippet of that was in theology, um, the Old Testament even. Mm -hmm. And um, so when did you sort of either, I don't know, come to this idea of wanting to, to write? Or have you always been writing stories or always been writing mysteries or crime? No, I didn't start writing until I was in my 30s. I started to, and I think there's actually, it's it's quite common in the mystery world for people to come to fiction as a sort of second career. I mean, a lot of the crime writers that I know have been lawyers or journalists or, you know, you fill in the blank. And, and maybe a, using that knowledge as setting for quite the, often. their work? Quite often, yeah, yeah. And I, I do use the, uh, the the theological, my own theological background in the in the various books. Not all the books, but about half of them have some aspect of, you know, my academic background. So, and it was, I think on the website it had said that after your second child went to school, so would that hit the time? Is that, or is that a personal mythology? That you're <laughs> no, it's very true. When I was 35 and my daughter was in second grade and my son started preschool, you know, three whole mornings a week to myself, I sat down and started writing because The Beekeeper's it was, Apprentice. Because it was something you wanted to do. Or had you been reading um, all of the Sherlock Holmes? Or was it just something? I guess no, that's what I'm wondering. No, I had not read Sherlock Holmes since, oh, you know, whatever it is you read in high school. Is it the Speckled Band or, <laughs> or, or, or Hound of the Baskervilles? Um, and 
I, I, looking back, I mean, this was 1987, and I think there must have been one of those Jeremy Brett series on PBS. There must have been in the background because that's would it would have taken something like that to sort of lodge the idea in the back of my brain. But the idea of writing a a person with that kind of mind who was yet not that same Victorian detective was there at the beginning. I mean, that's what I wanted to do was to write um, a a rather more interesting version <laughs> of the Holmes character. <laughs> a vastly superior one, be, being female, I mean. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. Um, and so... And, and no, no feminism here, you'll understand. <laughs> oh, hardly. Hardly. Um, but for... But with... Um, with Sherlock Holmes, um, did you do research? Did he? Because I actually, it's been a while as well. So I didn't. I researched you, Laurie, and not Sherlock <laughs> for this. And I wondered, were there ever any um, partnerships besides Dr. Watson's that had um, surfaced in those books? Or, or was this something you just decided? Well, there's been, there's been um, Holmes pastiches since Holmes was being written by Conan Doyle. So... From the from very early days, you started finding pe- other people writing home stories with and without permission of Conan Doyle. But um, whether there were any quite this same way, I I don't know. Um, for one thing, Holmes is always depicted as being a great misogynist, so it's hard to find him, you know, terribly sympathetic to a, a young woman. Um, and for another, most of the stories, most of the home stories tended to be pastiches. That is, you would um, take the characters that Conan Doyle had developed and you would pull them out for an adventure or two. And then you sort of brush them off and stick them back into the, the bring, canon. Bring them back to Baker Street. <clears throat> yeah. Which is tough to allow any kind of um, character development because you you can't you can't change them essentially whereas by picking homes up in 1914 1915 um conan doyle was finished with him in 1914 at the beginning of the great war he wrote um his last bow was the name of the story and that was the latest setting of any of his sherlock holmes stories so that for Conan Doyle, Holmes, in effect, didn't survive the war. British society, you see, didn't survive the Great War. It became a different thing in 1919. And as far as Conan Doyle was concerned, Holmes had no place in that new world. Um, so that with Mary Russell as his, as it were, door into the world... Um, I I am allowed to develop Holmes in some very interesting ways that I think Conan Doyle would not have um, reckoned with. And is that just something you come to in the writing of it as the as the storyline is growing, and you think, well, this is how he's going? Because it se- seems like you have some, you had more ideas about Mary Russell, um, her character, mm-hmm. like the the um, conception of that. But but was it where you just thought, oh, this is. 
Like you feel like it's like it's if you were to translate a poem, it might be the same language. But when you're translating it, you step into it and it becomes something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's that's what happened with your homes and you were surprised. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. I had not really intended to um, to allow homes to, to move into those areas. Um, I was writing Russell books. I mean, from the beginning, these were Mary Russell stories. And <clears throat> Holmes was always meant to be a supporting actor in them. I'm terribly good for him to be kept in the rear, don't you think? Um, but as time went on, it became more interesting to me to see how both of them would would develop. And and really, isn't that what what happens in a in a partnership of, or a marriage? Um, the the individuals come into it as, you know, their own identities. But very soon they form a unit and they affect how the other person moves and changes and thinks. And there's been nine novels yeah, with this partnership. Yeah. Well, And this one, I think, is really... Uh, the, the last one, which is called Locked Rooms, looked very closely at, at Mary Russell. It was set in San Francisco where she had spent part of her childhood, um, and the book itself explored how her ideas of her childhood were in fact flawed, that she thought she remembered things that were not the case. So there was a lot about identity and personal history in that book. This book follows that one by a few months. This is now August of it's 1924. Their, their return to Sussex. Right. We'll take a short break and then let's we'll hear more about the language of these. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Laurie R. King, we'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers. Today on the program, Lori R. King, The Language of Bees, her latest, um, a novel of suspense featuring Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so, well, we've got tons to talk about. Um, Lori, you've written many, many books. <laughs> this is 19. That's So that's impressive. So your production speed is is. I do about a book it's a year, quick. yeah. So yeah. so when you were a kid, were you did you keep notebooks? Were you always just doing that? Were you sort of a, a scribbler or a sketcher or or was Not, it literally this just you just decided to do it when you were 35? Well, I had played a few years earlier I'd played with a um a kind of futuristic novel which has since been published, but um So and, and is that why you used a pseudonym for that one? Yeah, because it's not a mystery and the publishers were concerned that um people would be confused. We don't, we don't want to confuse people. <laughs> but have a little faith. <laughs> <laughs> we're not a bunch of, you know, adults or drones only. <laughs> well, it's there's also the the problem of um the way the economy of publishing is set up. Um, if you have a book that is different and that doesn't sell as much because it's you know not a mystery and you're a mystery writer or whatever, um, in the grand scheme of things, it can actually affect uh, the next two or even three books down the line because your sales figures are based on the, the past book for things like the big change. I mean, it's a, just an odd setup. Oh, you but mean that's... where you would perhaps go on the tour? Like, so for the marketing aspect of the next book, is that what you no, mean? No, if, uh, if I am uh, the buyer for a, for a big chain store and Lori King came out with a book that sells, we, we sold, instead of selling 10,000, we sold 8,000. So you order the eight and I would base my next order on the eight, even if it were not, you know, that... Um, the, the same series or related to it in any way. Well, I noticed on um, your website there was some where you sort of um, kind of wanting to stick it to the idea of categories, and and there was some frustration <laughs> with that, which I yeah. think is I, I and I wondered if um, because you came you you found a form that works for you with the with the mysteries or the crime, mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if you ever felt called upon to. Um, to defend it or to, because, because with this idea of categories, it does seem kind of crazy. Like writers write and, and why can't you write something else without throwing a pseudonym on it? And hmm. what it is, it's a very recent, um, phenomenon in, in the history of publishing is this business of categorizing kinds of fiction. Um, but it's mostly there for the convenience of not so much the readers and certainly not the writers, but for booksellers and, and libraries to know where to place a book on the shelf. And perhaps you could get multiple copies and have it in multiple places. Well, it's interesting <laughs> that as a writer becomes better known, even if they're, what they're doing is clearly crime fiction, you find them on different shelves so that, for example... Um, towards the end of his, well, it's hard to say the end of his career because he's still writing, but not much. Dick Francis, um, when he was active but extremely popular, his books would quite often be shelved not among mysteries but among fiction. Um, why, I, I don't know. 
I just honestly couldn't tell you. But I am comfortable with the idea of writing crime fiction. Um, you know, I, it doesn't... I know that a lot of mystery writers find it um, really frustrating to to be limited by that category. I, I don't. I find it very comfortable. I find that um, most people who read mysteries realize that these are novels that have a certain resemblance in form, but that's about it. So that if you, you know, if you like mysteries, you like something that, for, for one thing, has a plot, has a beginning and a middle and an end, <laughs> which, which a lot of modern fiction, mainstream fiction, doesn't. Um, but a crime fiction in general, and mysteries in particular, um, have have a certain form that the writer follows. It's no more limiting than a poet would find um, the business of writing a sonnet. Well, a sonnet has certain rules. And if you don't want to write a sonnet, don't. But if you want to write a sonnet, don't complain because you have more lines than it permits. But when you when you came to this, so you'd written the futuristic novel first in a way, but that was sort of off off to the side, and and then you yeah. you decided on the the mystery and and the crime mm -hmm. um, with the de the detective um, in the San Francisco police force yeah. as well. Um, well, that that actually was the third book I wrote, A Grave Talent. I wrote that after I'd written two of the Russell stories. Um, and why did you do that? Did you um, did you need to recharge? Were you sort of needing a new world to inhabit? Or I'm taking over all worlds. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it was to some extent. Um, I I wrote the first two Russells and uh, didn't have any luck selling either of them. I was I didn't have an agent at the time, so, so then what I was do you trying do? to send out. Yeah. I, I would send them out to various various publishing houses, and I found it um, nearly impossible both to write and to act as general secretary and manager, the rest of it. Is it because you didn't want an agent, or was it just like trying to, to figure out how the system works? Well, or To some extent, having an agent um, requires taking yourself seriously as a, <laughs> as a writer. And it, you know, I, I don't think most of us do when we start out. We don't we're, we're not business-like. We don't understand the difference between, you know, suspense and thrillers. We don't understand um, how the promotion business works. And, um, I, I mean, I think I was fairly typical in that when we sold a Grave Talent, and by that time I had an agent, um, but when, when we sold that, I didn't think of it as a particularly as a category of mystery but I just thought of it as a novel but of course it's about a cop and it's about murders and of course it's a mystery I mean but I didn't really think of it because it didn't occur to me that you you have to categorize stuff so how did you come to um that character Martinelli well I wanted to write a book about um a woman artist what would Rembrandt look like if Rembrandt were a woman and that didn't really seem to go in this in the sort of whimsical setup of Russell and Holmes. Um, it was a more serious and straightforward um, idea than really they could they could get themselves around. 
And also, since I hadn't sold the first two of the Russell stories, there was no particular reason to write a third in there. So I, I took that seed idea of a, a woman artist and transplanted it from 1920s England to a time and place that I knew somewhat better. I to San Francisco in the late 80s, which is when I was writing it. Um, and all the changes came along with that because, for one thing, if you have a historical, it's quite practical to, to have them be, in effect, amateur detectives. In modern fiction, especially if you're trying to write somewhat realistic modern fiction, you run into the Jessica Fletcher syndrome of you know, this, this woman who every time someone invites her for dinner, they find a body in the, <laughs> you know, under the table. Or That's like Miss Marple too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, you have to you have to continually justify how your character <laughs> investigates crimes and. You run into the problems of, for example, a private investigator is not permitted under California state law to investigate a murder. So, oh, so that's why so, you so you I'll place I'll her. Just in... make her a cop. Yeah. I mean, it's much easier. And because San Francisco is a fairly big city, it you know she could she could actually investigate murders instead of my little town that has you know <laughs> a murder every three or four years, and um, soon to come a functioning water fountain at oh, the park. Hopefully, one never knows. <laughs> it'll it'll make the headlines in the local paper. Will, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I wrote the Martinelli's partly because I hadn't sold the Russells, and also because it seemed it seemed to require something more realistic. And as luck would have it, that would be the first one sold. So I, I we sold that one and published it in 93, and it won the Edgar um, for that year, which was very good. That, yes. And so it's interesting because then um, the, the community almost probably thought, wow, this is her first time out of the gate, and she's got the Edgar mm-hmm. al- already. But in reality, it, it, you had believed in the, the storytelling and the writing through those the the previous Russell books, too. yeah, yeah, I kept written, going. At that point, I had written you know three, well, three and a half books, and was um, was really fairly comfortable with the idea of how you tell a story. And do you find that that's the stories are coming to you, um, and insisting on being in the the form or in the the mystery or crime the structure maybe we can talk about structure when we come back I, i'm i'm all ears well then let's let's take a short break now and you're listening to living writers uh thanks to alex bell hodge for engineering we're gonna have some more great music coming up next and thanks for to laurie r king for being here with her book the language of bees and we'll hear a bit of that too coming up
Hello, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, Lori R. King and her book, The Language of Bees. Um, well, before we do any more chatting, Lori, would you mind reading a piece for us? No, not at all. Um, this It's always difficult to, to, to know what to read unless you start at the very beginning, which is usually not very interesting because that's the part that people read when they pick up the book anyway. So um, this is a section, and some of it will make no sense, but they are off investigating um, the site of a murder in Sussex near a carved um, figure in the hillside called the Long Man. Because right now they're starting to think that there's some maybe like s- spiritual groups are, are there's some sort of, I don't know, murder conspiracy. Aren't they at this point, Marion Holmes? They are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we followed the ridgetop path along <clears throat> above the long man an area littered with archaeological curiosities, an old flint mine, a couple of quarries, several barrow mounds, and traces of the Roman ridge road. I sat down to remove a pebble from my shoe. Holmes settled beside me, scowling at the magnificent view that stretched out at our feet. Hillside, trees, the Cookmere Valley, the weald beyond. Church bells drifted across the freshening air. Were it not for the thought of what awaited us, I should have been ravenous. Did I give you the booklet by Alfred Watkins on British trackways, he asked. Before I could respond, he continued, developing an earlier work by a madman named Black, theorizing that Britain has certain innate geometrical lines that connect prehistoric monuments and the later Roman roads. Ley lines, Watkins calls them, the human landmarks reflecting the organization of the land itself. Aimless chatter like this, often nonsensical, was the way Holmes distracted himself. I, I knew from what. You found no sign of the child Estelle here in London, I asked. It was not really a question, but Holmes shook his head. It is lamentably easy to dispose of a small body, he said. Add to that the inescapable human fact that the younger the child, the more attention it attracts. If this woman was Yolanda Adler, I think it unlikely that we shall find her daughter alive. A spasm of pain ran through the beautiful morning, and I was grateful when Holmes launched himself straight down the near-vertical hill to the path near the giant's feet. It was near nine o'clock, and the sun was well up in the sky. I craned my neck for a last look at the figure, then turned towards the lane where we had left the motor. Ten steps along the path, Holmes dropped to his knees and pulled out his glass. It might have been a heel mark, then the dent left by a shoe inadequate for the footpaths, as the newspaper had put it. It might also have been the mark left by a walking stick or a sheep, but Holmes found several more of them and traced the dimensions of the clearest one under a piece of paper before resting a stone over it in case he wanted a plaster cast. It would suggest that she came here willingly, I said to Holmes's bent back. It would suggest that she came here under her own power, she corrected me. That is quite another matter. And they go on. And they go on. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. Thanks for reading that. Um, and so, how, so how long? Because this is a it's a long it's a it's a long story. It's, um, you get your money's worth out of this you one. Do it's got some heft to it. It's got some meat on its bones. Really good oh. for propping up a table at the end of it. <laughs> 
at least an inch and five eighths. The whole series, and you have an end table. <laughs> no, it's, it's, but it's and it also reads very quickly as well. Like it pulls you through. And um, and what interests me is the number of people who um, who like to read the books twice or more. I mean, I, I'm always fascinated because you sort of think, well, surely, surely that's an indication that you've done something wrong as a writer if they need to go back and reread it. But, but they seem to enjoy it immensely. You know, you read it first time through, you read it, you know, for the plot and the adventure. And then you read it, especially these Russell stories have a lot of textural details, I guess you'd call it, in language and setting and things. And I think that's why people enjoy a, a second and slower time through. Oh, because even though there's 433 pages perhaps is they that get, no, this one <laughs> okay <laughs> in the language of bees um and and you get pulled through then that well that must be very heartening for you because then people are appreciating some of the the things that you're consciously doing and subconsciously mm-hmm. shaping and it must yeah, be. especially because I, I you know it surprises me because i i don't do most of it deliberately i write especially the first draft i write through it um how long does that take First draft maybe maybe three months, and it gives me a manuscript that's maybe three hundred and fifty typescript pages. Um, and then I I go through and do the rewrite, and my rewrites tend to be considerably longer than my first draft, so that the rewrite is maybe four hundred and fifty, even five hundred. And when you say rewrite, do you mean um, looking at the pages before you, or actually just going again um, next it's, to it. It's a combination. Sometimes there'll be major um, plot changes and um, transplanting sections from here to there when I realize the rhythm doesn't go correctly. Um, occasionally there'll be a whole subplot that I'll work in because I, I haven't really developed one of the characters enough so that the... The, the rewrite process, I tend to spend longer on than the first draft, so that a rewrite will often take me four or five months as opposed to the three for a, for a first draft. And I think that's one of the reasons why people enjoy a second read is because it does have more depth to it than just a straightforward whodunit story. And is this one of your reasons for the these these the depth that you're adding to it and and these different um, not just facts but the developments within the storyline itself or the setting or where it is or 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 um, in this book the um, the spiritual sort of backdrop or mm-hmm. um, so is that why you like this form because it allows you or the structure of the the mystery because it it allows you. To, to put these things in there while also having something that's a pretty clear through line. Yeah. So long as you are moving the story along, um, you can write a mystery that's about pretty much anything. I mean, stamp collecting, revenge, international intrigue, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes. So long as the plot hangs together and you continue to entertain as you go, um, you can develop a story in all kinds of directions. And that is one of the one of the interesting things for me is to, for example, um, I, <clears throat> with my background in in theology, will work in 
theological ideas and themes and objects in in the stories. Uh, as I said, not in all of them, but in some of them. And this one, for example, has, I guess, I guess you'd call him a cult leader. Um, he he is. Uh, he has a religious group such as I mean we're we're accustomed to them as being thick on the ground now, but in the twenties, I mean there were all kinds of people in England who were into you know spiritualism and ectoplasm and odd religious traditions and you know anything that had a flavor of the east um you could you could pack them into your lecture hall <laughs> any night of the week <laughs> any night of the week so that um you know that that's one of the, the the pieces of background in this particular story is that twenties passion for odd religious expressions, right? So and that which connects to your your Old Testament. Um, so, yeah, I mean at least yeah. theology. Not not that I'm saying the Old Testament is. It's well, odd, no, it's pretty wacky it's too. Odd religion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's got its moments. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) And so so we can understand why, or I should say I, the royal we over here, um, can understand the San Francisco setting for the other series. Mm -hmm. And so what's your interest in Sussex? Like how did, how were you drawn to that as another part of your, you know, where you wanted to spend some time? Well, Sussex was given to me the way um, beekeepers, you know, beekeeping was given to me. in some of the later Holmes stories, Conan Doyle makes reference to Holmes as keeping bees and says that he has retired from his investigation life in Baker Street um, to the Sussex Downs. So that, I mean, clearly I could have moved him on afterwards, but why, why not? I mean, the Sussex Downs are fascinating, they're beautiful, they're... Um, you know, there you have to you have to start somewhere, and so I took the Holmes as uh, you know as a character when Conan Doyle was finished with him, and I picked him up then and there, and uh, and started the story anew, and that and Sussex was one of those places. But you know, when you have a story given to you, and I have an aspect of a story given to you, what you do is then look at all the all the information you can on that time and place, and and find what you can do to make it, you know, build the story. Oh, to add, so not just authentic, yeah. but to, to add momentum. Yeah. So, well. that, for example, this, the, the Long Man of, of Wilmington, that which is just nearby where, where Holmes retired to, um, they that enters into the storyline. Well, if there had been some different prehistoric site there that probably would have been that instead but um but the long man was it's very interesting and if you're interested there's um photographs and uh, and video on the website as we've done a couple of videos of this book and beekeeper and so lauriearking.com yeah people can go and, and click on the videos and spend and days <laughs> lost in a walking in the, tour of sussex in the wit and wisdom of lauriearking oh <laughs> <laughs> no small thing. <laughs> and so did you also um, get a chance to go up to the Orkney Islands? Because oh, yeah. I guess with your... Oh, okay. Um, a I'm visual... Wearing, I'm wearing a pin. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> hard, hard to really express that on the radio, but yeah. Right, and, and that's from the islands, or- yeah. Orkney Islands. Yeah, I... You know, as I was looking at the scope of um, of where in Britain I could set various... 
um, various snippets in there. Um, I came across reference to a solar eclipse that was not actually in um, Britain. I mean, even the Shetlands didn't. didn't oh. <laughs> it was you know, fairly close. And so I thought, well, that would be interesting to work it out. How far north could I get? And uh, did some reading on Orkney and found these fascinating prehistoric places on Orkney, um, which, you know, is much closer to Denmark um, historically than it is to England. Um, but uh, the, so we, we even managed to get the picture of the stones of Stenness onto the cover of the book, which was no small triumph. They kept wanting to do some odd house and I kept saying there's no house there's no house (laughs) so we're going to put the stones on it but yeah um, so it's um, this fascinating remote island up off the end of Scotland that I, I went up to and so is that part of um so that that's part of the benefit of doing this then because your research allows you to go there and then sort of immerse yourself in it is that it's a true? hard job right but you know somebody's got to do it so I I I keep trying to figure ways of setting books in places like um, the Bahamas. <laughs> that that hasn't really worked yet. But um, it's I, hard to think of homes in bathing trunks. <laughs> not so much. And Russell always seems to end up someplace really cold and miserable. But um, one one of the future places um, in uh, in locked rooms, it makes reference to their stopping in Japan and doing a case for the emperor as they come through Japan in 1924. So, um, so that's on deck? You know, I, I, I'm going to have to go there because it's in print now. So I just, I don't have any choice. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we'll be right back. You're listening to living writers. I'm T Hetzel today on the program, Lori R. King and her book, the language of bees. We'll be back.
welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Lori R. King and her book, The Language of Bees, the ninth in the series, the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes series. Um, the New York Times bestselling author. That's me. That's so. These are consistently are the in the series. Is it Lori that these these are all top in the charts? Would I be sitting here if not? <laughs> yes, in, in the fame WCBN studios. There I am. <laughs> um, yeah, in fact, Language of Breeze came into the Times list um, this week at number nine. So. Oh, well, congratulations! Thank that's you. good. That's um, that's lovely. It that's makes lovely. my my publishers happy. <laughs> <laughs> See, we've ramped up the energy again after our our musical interlude there from the. Yep. Um, <laughs> from the early twentieth century, maybe I don't know. Um, so, so Lori, with um, with the series um, that which the language of bees is part of this series, um, when you're you're writing it, you, you mentioned that there's Japan in the future, mm-hmm. um, and is it sort of uh, as you're nearing the end of the novel, does it feel like? Um, because at the end of this one, I won't say what it is, but it definitely feels like you're, there's another, like you're given a push. It's not almost that feeling like this has ended, but there's something right on its heels. That's the sense of it. It's that, it's that subtle three words to, to be continued. <laughs> and then a, <laughs> ellipsis, right? That, I, think, that, I think you did that, both. <laughs> yeah, that T was trying to avoid giving away. Um, this, this book does have, I mean, a, a number of people have seen that and thought, I'm not going to read this until the next one comes out then because I don't want to be on a cliffhanger. There are no cliffhangers. <laughs> Everything is settled. Book ends. Um, it was simply that a couple of the characters from this one do not um, come to as neat and tidy a conclusion as you normally have in a novel. And that was because I wanted to use them in the following novel, which will be out in a year's time. And so we, we put that in. And so now we're getting people <laughs> complaining the other direction of saying, well, you you shouldn't have put that in because it made it look good. Un- anyway. No, <clears throat> so, no, you can please them all. <laughs> honestly, yes. This one finishes. Don't worry about it. So. And so and so, you really have finished the next book. It's already... I've finished the first draft. Oh, the f- and when I get home later this week, I will be starting the rewrite. So, so four months. <laughs> From our conversation today, we'll yeah. know where, what's happening yeah, there. I'm actually going to try and get this one out by the end of August because things get kind of crazy the end of August. I've got a book. The, the book uh, Language of Bees will actually be out in Britain the end of in September, but I have to go early for a memorial and I have to be f- maybe, you know, one of these really tough tour things. I, I may have to go to Paris for two weeks. And then, uh, and then I have too a, bad in the in the in the summertime. <laughs> well, it, yeah, I think September would or be September. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah, right. August in Paris. No, no. The only advantage to Paris in August is there are no Parisians in town in August. They all leave. <laughs> it actually it leaves it for just the Americans, but it is kind of hot. But by September it should be fine. And then um, I have to be in uh, in Indianapolis for a conference for Bouchicon in uh, in mid October. So, and you know, basically the fall is already written off. I if I don't finish the rewrite by the end of August, not going to happen. So you've got to sit longer at the desk. That's me. You got to do that. And so Bouchicon now that's International Mystery Writers Association, it, isn't it? Yeah, is it? it's well, it's mostly the U.S. Although they've had a number of them in England. Um, 
But it's oh, it says actually World Mystery Convention. That's why I was <laughs> World Mystery Convention. Well, people come from all over. It's the biggest of the mystery um, get-togethers, and it moves around. Um, one year it was in Anchorage and um, Chicago, and this year it's in Indianapolis, and next year it's in San Francisco. And I will be the guest of honor, so do come. Oh, lovely! We'll That's have funny. a party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and does that mean? Do you give people? Um, uh, motivational talks, or do you give them? Because I was going to say, are you know, what are your tips? Like, what if somebody thinks, you know, I would like, I have never written a mystery before, but I would like to try to work with this form. You know, what would your? This could be a preview of the conference. <laughs> what, what would your? No, I would tell them there's no money in it. Don't try. <laughs> I don't need any more competition. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I think that um, that's one of the advantages of that kind of convention, isn't it? Because you have, what, four days of panels um, going on, and it's it's all about um, craft and marketing and uh, research, um, all, all the sorts of things that go into making a novel, and they're very helpful. Did you go to it before you you had success with the publishing aspect? I, my first one was, yeah, three years before I was published, um, and I didn't go to very many of them beforehand, but I, I since then I've I've tried to make it. Well, the last ten years I've gone to most of them, I think. Well, it seems like there's a strong community aspect to. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the drawbacks of being uh, in this business is that your colleagues are people you never see. I mean, you know, I have a good friend who lives in Anchorage, and how often do I get to Anchorage? Um, I so have another be good at this friend. Indianapolis who, conference. Yeah, then. well, I went with luck. Um, so, <laughs> oh, well, um, well, a couple more. We have time for just a little bit more. Um, I, what when you're writing a series, Laurie? How is that different in your mind to writing the standalone novel? Um, because you work in two series. And, yeah, and I have two series, and I've done um, four standalones as well. Now. With a standalone, of course, you have to get those characters' entire universe within those 400 pages or whatever. Um, you get not only their past, but the story itself and something of their future. You have to get a sense of where they're going. So that for those characters, this is their only chance to walk on the earth. And <clears throat> That's it, a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no pressure there. Um Whereas with a series, you have a certain relaxation of that. You can go into diversions to some extent because you're developing characters and um, the community as well as just that tight storyline. So um, it's a different style of writing, a different style. Do you feel like then your rhythms as a writer... um gravitate more towards the th series that's what you feel like when you're constructing the stories or when or or is it construction or are they coming to you like the ideas for the different uh in pieces well both both um i mean you, you get ideas but then ideas don't write the book you got <laughs> <laughs> blood yeah. sweat and tears yeah you just gotta sit and do it um no the I, I don't know that I really would say I prefer one style or the other. I find the challenge of a standalone, um, I, I mean, because it is 
such an intense amount of work. The challenge is more, but it's very satisfying. I, I mean, I really, I really like the standalones that I've done. I find them good, solid pieces of work. Well, also, I wanted to, um, to ask you about your involvement. Because when I was looking at your website, lauriarking.com, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I noticed that you're doing a very good thing. It's a, a sort of a, a very um, philanthropic thing, Lori. You're, you're giving part of the proceeds of the language of bees um, uh, to the Heifer International. And, yeah. and also uh, letting people who donate enter a contest to name a future character. <laughs> so could you tell yeah. us about Heifer International and, and about this character naming? Well, um, Heifer International came to my attention a number of years ago when I had um, one of my readers donated a beehive in my name and sent me a note about it. And I thought, mm, that sounds rather odd, but thank you. <laughs> um, and I, I then followed up, and um, they're a great organization. They send agricultural assistance to third world communities and individuals and instead of just sending food you send the means by which to produce um, so that when we were putting together a, a project this spring called 15 weeks of bees which tied together the 15th anniversary of beekeepers apprentice and the publication of the language of bees uh, we did um, contests and um, art projects. There's a thing on the website called Russellscape um, that, uh, where people could send in um, panels that would then scroll past that all link up. Um, and one of the things that we did was um, tie, tie it into Heifer International because of the bee connection. So I'm directing people to them, and we're raising funds for them. And in exchange, um, they have done a certain amount of um, look at Lori King and what she's doing on their site. And they, they did a thing for April 26th was their um, bee day. For the, April was their month of passing on the gift. And they did a bee day, and they, they brought people's attention to the Lori King site. So um, it's been an interesting reciprocal arrangement, and it I'm hoping to meet uh, one of the ladies t tomorrow in, in Cincinnati. And and do you already have the character written, and you will be amenable to a name change? Or how does that work? Like well, where yeah, one of the things that we agreed to was because there are, um, because there are laws about um, actually giving um, taxable valued goods as a prize. What I said was, what about if I name a character? Because how can you put a price on that? You can't. I mean, I have put prices on it at various points, but it's a it's a donation. So um, so that was the grand prize for if if an, anyone who donates two beehives, which is $60, to Heifer International through the Team LRK site, um, had the chance to get their name drawn, and we're going to be doing that um, on the 20. 1st of May, um, get their name drawn for a, you know, a guest appearance on the next Holmes and Russell, which is called The Green Man. So that will be, that will be. So that, so name. they actually, it's not any name that they want to choose, but it's their name that gets it, into their that. name, unless they have a name that's impossible. To <laughs> unless get. they don't want to be the murderer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually you give people a choice between being a victim or, a, you know, a housekeeper or something. Partly it depends on the name, and sometimes it's really tough to work in names to certain kinds of books. So it's, you know, there's a certain amount of negotiation that it's involved, but that it should be fun. And 
it, you know, we've raised a whole bunch of money for heifer, so that's great. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's no. nothing to sneeze at, even in the springtime. <laughs> in the springtime, especially. <laughs> and, and so, Lori, um, with the just in our closing moments, like, what is it about mystery that you love that just? I I just love the way that you can you know tell stories in so many directions. I mean, you've got the bones of the mystery, which is just sort of a who done it, but. You can flesh it out with so many different things. I mean, you know, Regency romance, mysteries, um, hardcore Jack Reacher whodunits. <laughs> They're just, it's just such a flexible field. Well, that's great. That's great. Um, but thanks so much for being on the program. Thank and, you. And, uh, um, and representing mysteries uh, with a plum. <laughs> I, I do my best. And so you've been listening. You've been listening to Lori R. King. Um, and she's come through town with her latest, The Language of Bees, um, the ninth um, in the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes series. Um, thanks again for listening, Ann Arbor. And thanks to Alex Bellhodge for engineering. Um, thanks to those streaming wherever you might be. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. from Clonmara and you're listening to WCBM FM Ann Arbor From Pacifica Station KPFK in Los Angeles this is Free Speech Radio News it's Wednesday the 27th of May 2009 Thousands take to the streets around California to protest the high court's decision to uphold a ban on same-sex marriage We'll go to Georgia, where repeated calls for President Saakashvili to step down have also divided the nation's media outlets. And Israel's parliament passes a preliminary reading of a controversial law that would make it illegal to question whether it should be an exclusively Jewish state. I'm Ara Bogado. Stay tuned for those stories and more. But first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. A suicide car bomb in Lahore, Pakistan, killed 24 people today, including 14 policemen. The blast left over 200 injured. FSRN's Gabe Matthews reports. 
The suicide bombing is the fourth serious attack in Lahore, a city near the Indian border, widely considered to be the country's cultural capital. Despite the attacks, violence is a relatively new phenomenon in the city, which is located on the opposite side of the country from Taliban strongholds. Today's bomb destroyed a police facility and damaged a military intelligence building. Wasim Akhtar is a member of the National Assembly of Mutahida Kwami Movement Party, the only party that boycotted the SWAT peace deal. He says he doesn't want to wait until a SWAT-like situation emerges in Lahore, and that the government should immediately begin to take measures to stem the violence, because the Taliban already has some regional support.